Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's Backbone. Welcome to episode 64. This is part two of my series on the topic of race and the whitewashing of theater. This is a look from behind the table. Special thank goes to San Diego's Old Globe, who gave me permission to interview one of their associate artistic directors, Eric Keen Lewis, and one of their resident directors, James Vasquez. Hi, I'm sitting here at the Old Globe Theater in the boardroom, right in between The Grinch Stole Christmas tech rehearsal. I'm sitting here with the director of The Grinch, James Vasquez, and one of the associate artistic directors of the Old Globe Theater, Eric Keen Louie. <laughs> if each one of you could tell me where you're from and how you got started and involved in theater. Sure, I'll start. I am a San Diego native, and I actually got started in theater because of the person who is interviewing us right now, Brad Bradley. <laughs> True story. One of the reasons I'm in theater is because of Brad. Brad and I went to Catholic school together, Yes. starting at the age of kindergarten, and were BFFs when we were little, little tiny boys. Yes, we were. And uh, <laughs> I come from an artistic family. My father is a poet, but back during that time, we would have lots of poetry readings at the house, lots of artists at the house, so I was surrounded by the arts. But then, because I was friends with Brad and hung out with him constantly, Brad was going on auditions and I would tag along, or Brad would have a show that I would go see, or Brad would have a dance recital that I would go to. Do you remember the Christmas pageant? What was it? Second grade? First grade? Yes. Where they had the role of the angel, the singing angel. And I was determined to get the role of the singing angel, and Brad got the role of the singing angel. <laughs> and I got the third camel of the three wise men. But I was thrilled, I was on stage. So yeah, I sort of, I mean, you're one of the reasons that I got in theater. Then when we moved, when I was nine or 10. Yeah, broke my heart. Uh, yeah, we had to part ways for a little while. My parents enrolled me in the community theater, the Patio Playhouse Community Theater in Escondido, California just to help me make friends. And I gave up, I broke my dad's heart because I gave up my baseball glove. I was kind of a kick-ass second baseman and picked up tap shoes and that was it. Out of high school, after high school, I went to New York. I went to the Juilliard School. I was in the drama program. I lived what in, school was that? Uh, Juilliard. Oh, oh, just, <laughs> just a little school I've um, never heard of. <laughs> I lived in New York, in and out of New York as jobs took me through the 90s and then in early 2000 moved to LA to become a big fat TV star swearing that I would never, ever, ever move back to San Diego. I got a job in San Diego that ran for two years and that was 17 years ago and I haven't left. And now I'm very happy in San Diego. But uh, you also, I mean, you're a very prolific director, choreographer in San Diego. Yes, yes. And But you also don't only direct here, you direct all over the place. I do, yes. As a performer, was doing a lot of musicals and was often the dance captain. And as we know, dance captains will put new cast members in, will run some rehearsals. And then with the Grinch, the dance captain would remount all the musical numbers every year. So from that experience, I started getting asked to direct around town, direct and choreograph. And that opened a whole new set of doors for me. And the fantastic thing is, when I got asked to take over The Grinch, my name was suddenly on Playbill.com as the director, and people started reaching out. <laughs> so I was like, I guess I'll direct. I think it's where I always was supposed to live. So the universe sort of guided me that direction. In the last couple years, have been lucky to get opportunities to branch out of San Diego and I'm starting to test new waters, which is great. It's well, exciting. I love it. Well, you also are a filmmaker. You have two films that you wrote and directed. Yes. With Carrie Preston, who is a classmate of mine from drama school, we started a small independent film production company, and I wrote a screenplay, gosh, 13 years ago now, called 29th and Gay, which was loosely based on some of my experiences, maybe a little too many of my experiences <laughs> in retrospect but we got together and she wanted to direct a movie I wanted to write it and we said let's make it and just see what happens we called friends it took us about three months we shot it on weekends and we would call friends and say what are you doing Saturday we shot the whole thing for about eleven thousand dollars and literally used like broomsticks with microphones from Radio Shack duct taped to the end of the broomstick oh, wow. as our boom poles 
we went to Home Depot, got construction lights, and that was our light kit. I mean, it was like, we called it showing our low budget underwear. Like we, it was, we were exposed. But we made this thing that people liked and it played international and national festivals. It got released, it got a, a TV airing. I wrote a second movie riffing off of that called Ready OK, actually again involving Brad Bradley, because <laughs> when I we love were- I okay. Well, thank you. When we were in second grade, Brad and I tried to do a cheer with the girls in our class <laughs> for a Spirit Week pep rally. And we practiced, and as we were getting ready to go on for the pep rally, a nun grabbed us and said, little boys can't be cheerleaders. Mm. Which inspired this movie about a little boy who wants to be a cheerleader. I wrote and directed that one, but Carrie directed 29th and Gay, and I unfortunately starred as myself for all the world to see. <laughs> well, I love them both. I've seen, I've seen Ready OK three times. Nice. Because I had to show it to my mom and then my sister. I love your work. But I Thank love you. you as a person. Yeah, so. well. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> so, uh, Eric, yeah. tell me about yourself and how you got to where you are. Sure. I think I'm the anomaly in the, in the industry in that I was never a performer unless you count my three elementary school performances. Those count. They do. Yeah. I, 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 as construction worker number five in <laughs> yeah. Peter Pan and spinning wheel finder in Sleeping Beauty. Yes. Oh. Uh, my, my, my construction workers in Peter Pan? It was a original version of Peter Pan and an original version of Sleeping Beauty that never went further than the Walnut Avenue School elementary mm. school production. Closed out of town. Close, closed out <laughs> to three performances each. I'm terrified of performing. I never wanted to be a performer. Uh, and was sort of always on the sideline. And I fell into theater because my parents grew up in New York City, had this love of Broadway theater. And so growing up, we would get the last seat in the balcony and they take, you know, the three kids and we saw so many. My first Broadway show was the Who's Tommy mm. at the age of 10, which I probably shouldn't have seen at the age of 10, but really sort of shaped my life of what I wanted to do. And now I was supposed to go to business school <laughs> and there are days where I wonder why didn't I do that? But I was supposed to go to business school. I actually started NYU in, as an undergrad going to Stern and realized I didn't want to do that anymore. I dabbled with becoming an elementary school teacher for a couple months and then settled on theater as something I wanted to do, but I didn't know what I could do in it because I didn't want to be a performer. I wasn't a writer. I wasn't a director. And so I took a semester off and interned. I, I interned for a theatrical booking agency and a talent agency, so an agency that reps actors. And at that time, when a breakdown went out, they didn't really have the sort of all the online capability that they do now. And we'd have little cubbies where we'd have to pull the headshots and the resumes. And so part of my internship was to read a script and then think about who, who of the clients were the right people to submit. And I found what I really loved was reading scripts early in their development and then getting to see them on Broadway, off Broadway to see how they changed. Mm. And so really fell in love with sort of the written word there. And then when I went back to school, I ended up back to NYU as a dramatic literature major. I ended up working on an off-Broadway show called Summer 42, and then 9-11 happened, so that oh. show closed. And I ended up, for the, the last three years of my, my time in school, working for a Broadway producer by the name of Margot Lyon, who was a lead producer on Hairspray. And she also did Jelly's Last Jam and Angels in America, and really fell in love with producing, working with her. She was a true, hands-on commercial producer but also creative producer was very smart dramaturgically. And the last thing I worked on with her was the Broadway transfer of Carolina Change and really fell in love with art and sort of the idea of trying to make a show for an audience and, and beyond just selling it, making it a good show. So I was back in school. I worked for her. I, I, I worked in PR for two years. And then I ended up falling into the New York Musical Theater Festival. I, I got hired to produce a musical called Kingdom, which the Globe actually did, which was a, uh, I call it the, the Hamilton for the Hamilton. It was a rap hip hop musical about the gang, the Latin Kings. Yeah. Uh, sort of dealing with gang violence and how, how young people fall into gangs and fell in love with just getting my hands dirty and working with the writers to make the piece better and doing everything, doing all the press, doing all the marketing, doing all the general managing, you know, with, with a friend of mine, but really learned how to make a show happen. I ended up going to Columbia to get my master's in producing and theater management, uh, did a couple fringe shows, and then ended up working at the public theater, assisting a woman by the name of Jenny Gersten on producing the season for them. And then prior to coming out here, I was their director of special projects, working on all their readings and workshops and their public lab series. And I came out here about six years ago as the associate producer at the time. Uh, now I've 
worked my way up to associate artistic director. Well, that's great. I read something in the Huffington Post about you. It was an article about diversity and inclusion, Yeah, and which is a great article. It goes with the topic of today's episode. It's a part two episode about race and theater and the whitewashing of it. And I wanted to get the creative side of it. I got the actor's point of view. Because right now, I think the race issue is a hot topic in the country, but yeah. it, now it's affecting uh, the theater community and in many ways putting a wedge wedge into it. So I wanted to talk to you about your opinions and your experience. Could be considered now people of color, would you say? Is that yeah. like the right <laughs> word? But now I feel like the people, all people of color are now lumped into a group as opposed to being like, I'm Latin, I'm Asian, or it's a new wonderful alliance. But then even within that alliance, there also seems to be wedges. So trying to figure out and navigate this, and I'm doing some of these interviews because I have to admit, these are issues I've never thought of. I'm learning that, that white privilege isn't a bad thing, it's just a fact, but not getting defensive about it because it's something I don't really yeah, know. Yeah, you know, I think the big thing is, and the thing, you know, the, the thing that I hope we as theater artists can do is have a, a real conversation about it. Because I think we're all coming at it from different places. I think we all have our different baggage about things. You know, one of the things that I hope that we can figure out as an industry, as a collective, as artists, is how not to point fingers at everybody else, how not to yell at everybody else, how to really sit down and say, okay, you don't understand where I'm coming from. So I need to tell you where I'm coming from. I mean, I've had experiences working at every theater with different artists where people don't understand where I'm coming from, but how could they? They've not lived my experience. I need to explain my experience of why I'm upset about something Mm -hmm. and the lens through which I'm viewing that thing. Otherwise, I'm just coming across as upset. I mean, if I can ask a question to that, because I think there are so many conversations on multiple topics that need to happen in our country right now, but I find myself often hesitant because I don't want to ask a question that's offensive or say something. So I I love that these conversations are happening, but how do we give permission to have a safe place to maybe say something incorrect or maybe say something ignorant or naive, Mm -hmm. not intentionally, but from a, I'm trying to learn, I want to be part of the dialogue and I don't have the answers. So blah. But I hope it it would be that. I hope it would be saying, I may not be coming at this the right way. I may not. I may not be using the right words. But uh, I want to learn. But I want to learn, mm-hmm. and and I want to make it better, and I want to make this a, a a more cohesive, more accepting, more inclusive place to work. But I think the challenge that I find is that people don't want to even start that. Sure. And then that's where the cycle just keeps spinning, yeah. because I think you have to engage with the thing head on. I feel like I've encountered that people either go into the direction of yelling or just not even bringing it up. Hmm. And I hope that at some point we can continue working on sort of finding a middle ground to have these conversations because they're going to be messy. And I think they need to be messy because out of mess comes something better. As long as both sides are respectful that they may not understand the thing. They may not have the right words. Sure. But if you can meet in the middle and at least try to work it together, I think if you come in with the idea of, I want to work on this together, then I think we can move forward. Yes. But I think if we're going to be stuck in our own shit, <laughs> then we're just going to be stuck in our own shit. Right. I think we've got to lay this shit out on the table. Yeah. Well, and James, I found it interesting that years ago you changed your professional name because of the ethnic stereotype your real name came with. Yeah. Uh, yes. My full name is Pedro James Vasquez. When I graduated from drama school, I was being submitted for or called in for a lot of Jose's or Miguel's or young gang members. My mother is Caucasian. She's Southern Californian. I'm mixed race. And I favor my mother's side more. So I would walk into these auditions and reading for Miguel, and they would look at me, and in one instance for a a Broadway show, they, as I was walking out of the room, they said, can you come back in? And they handed me sides for the role of Bobby. And they were like, can you not read Miguel? Can you read for Bobby? And I found, we found, uh, my agents and I, that I was not booking work because I was only being called in based on my name, or I was not booking work because I could not get called in because I didn't look like what they wanted. I was ethnic enough to not be a Bobby, but I was not ethnic enough to, do you know what I mean? I I fit, so I had a little bit of this identity crisis. And they suggested, so they suggested dropping the Pedro and just going by James Vasquez. 
I had a nervous breakdown about that. I thought that I was really sort of harming my family and betraying my family. So I called an uncle, I called my dad, I called my grandmother to get their approval in a way, you know? And they all said, it's still your name. You're not changing it. Mm -hmm. You're still using your name. And you know, my grandfather used to always say, remember who you are, remember who you are. So that stuck with me. And as I get older, interestingly enough, I'm getting opportunities now to sort of revisit the Latin side of my culture and learn about that. You know, I'm getting to direct shows about uh, Latino communities and not fully knowledgeable about them, but taking those opportunities to tap back into Pedro. (laughs) Yeah. You know, for lack of a better. Eric, earlier you were talking about in order to accept a community and to be talking about these ethnic communities, you're also reaching out to the actual community. And I read a quote from you that says, you have to invest as much in them as you are asking them to invest in you. So you're bringing right now Shakespeare out to different communities in San Diego with the Globe? Yeah, we're now in our fourth year of a program called Globe for All, which is based on a model of theater that Michelle Hensley created in Minneapolis called 10,000 Things. The idea of it is taking a professional Shakespeare production into communities, so homeless shelters, prisons, libraries, etc., all around, for us, San Diego County. We don't dumb down the language. It's the original language as Shakespeare wrote it. Uh, but what we do is that we do truncate it, so they are shorter productions. But they still run about two hours so it's it is a full a full evening of Shakespeare you know and the the big thing for us and, and with that quote you know the first year we started we did have good good relationships with communities around San Diego but what we found was a lot of times it was a one-time deal meaning we'd have a program that we were really excited about getting a community involved in we'd come in we'd do the program and then because of budget cuts or we didn't get the grant the next year we didn't see them again and so it's sort of this sort of idea of parachuting in when it feels like we have the right thing versus what we're now doing is having year-long and years, years-long relationships with organizations. So not just bringing the show once a year, but doing programs, doing writing classes, doing art projects, things like that, where we're investing in the community. We're not just saying, hey, we're going to come once a year, come see our show, please. Mm. But building real relationships because that's where then you actually see the impact because you're seeing people come year after year. You're seeing people go through programs. We have a partnership with an organization called Veterans Village of San Diego, which is a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center for veterans in the city. And we had a guy who came to see Globe for All, then he took one of our classes, and now he's actually working as an overhire in our scene shop. And we actually, he was just on the plaza, we're putting up our Grinch Christmas tree. Uh, He's actually helping to put up the tree. And so he's getting paid by the Globe, he's back on his feet, he has an apartment, he has a job with us. And that is sort of really kind of the legacy of what we can be doing with this with this community work specifically, is really getting our hands in the community and working with them and not just saying again, we'll see you once a year. And that's where you see the real change. That's where you see the impact in the community. That's where you see people around the community who had never been here before go, oh my God, the old club's coming again this year. Right. got to come. They'll take their friends. They feel like we're not just coming in saying, here's your Shakespeare, poor people. You know, it's saying we care about you. You're yeah. part of the San Diego community just as we are and that's where you see the change well I think it's great so James you mentioned that you this summer you directed a production of In the Heights I did which I know in Chicago there's some scandal because regional theaters pick shows that are about an ethnic minority they also in that community don't have enough people to cast it so they end up casting the local favorite who happens to be white what was your experience doing it in San Diego where you would think They'd be out in droves. We talked earlier that the Hispanic community is larger than the Caucasian community in California or just San Diego. Don't quote me, but this is well, something yeah. that um, <laughs> it was said to me recently, and I'm paraphrasing and probably getting some of it wrong, that at this point in our time, in our communities, in Southern California, the uh, Latino community is actually equal to, if not outnumbering, the Caucasian communities. I felt like I grew up with the Mexican culture in the United States of America because right. I grew up in San Diego. Right. So you would think within the Heights, you they would just be in droves. So sure. How was that process? First of all, I loved the experience. I loved the show. I didn't know the show before I had agreed to direct it. You know, I researched it and then signed on. And the more I worked on it, fell in love with it. And again, really sort of connected, began to reconnect me, which was exciting. It was produced by a big summer musical company that is funded through um, a city here in Southern California. 
So it was an interesting thing because all the actors, the non-union actors, they have a couple equity contracts per show, but the rest are made up of non-union actors who, when they get employed, are employed through the city. Mm. And because of those city rules, we are not allowed to ask at the audition, what is your background? What is your, what, you know, we can't ask those hiring rules. But are you allowed to ask that at any audition? That I'm not sure. Can you, can you, Eric, in an audition? You're really not supposed to. You're really not supposed to. Yeah, that's what. Because that becomes a labor issue. Yes. That, yeah, you don't really want to. Yeah, because that's (laughs) why there was, someone cast a a Navita recently that looked Latin, but she found out, I mean, she was Italian. If someone looks the part, but it's, it's difficult. Well, and that, you know, that brings us back to In the Heights. We had a great turnout for auditions, and the quality of work that this theater does is improving every year. So we pulled the best of the best. And we pulled the people who really stood out and and made choices and were able to tell the story. Come to find out that a few of them were not fully Latino or Latino at all. It caused a little bit of a stir. The question was, well, did you search far and wide? Did you do your due diligence? We did. When there were a handful of roles we couldn't cast, we called agents and said, do you have non-union talent? We have housing. We can bring actors in from out of town. We brought somebody in from New York. We brought somebody in from Salt Lake City. Mm. So we actually reached out beyond just the local community when we couldn't find, still not fully 100% successful at the end of the day. Right. They felt like we had not done our due diligence and that I, as a Latino director, was not fully telling the story appropriately. The interesting thing about it is one of the women who played the mother is actually of Samoan descent. Oh. Which I didn't know until we were a week or two into rehearsal. This was one of the issues that was was brought up. Well, she's a playing principal in the show and she is Samoan and not Latina. The community that the theater is in has a wide range of Samoan population. So there's a large Samoan community there that then the question becomes, and again, this is a a, a question that I'm asking, did we falter there? Because here's somebody, a Samoan from the community who hasn't seen herself represented on stage, right? but was able to step into this principal role and the community was able to come see themselves on stage, maybe not playing themselves, but playing a principal role. It was a discussion that we had in rehearsals when this issue was brought up. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we built a community. Our cast built a community and a neighborhood, and we were able to tell the story. And I do want to say, the cast was fully diverse. It was a company Mm. of all actors of color, just not 100% Latino. But 100% people of color. Yes. Yes. So did we succeed 100%? No. Did we succeed 100%? Yes. I don't know. And was it wrong that this very talented, beautiful Samoan actor was playing this this role and the community got to come see her? Right. Because I think what's interesting is you talking about bringing it out to the the non-theater community. I think everyone wants to go see a show and see themselves on stage. But also, it's one thing to cast someone like that, but it's another thing to get that community butts in the seats to see it. You know, so by casting a Samoan, you're going to expose them all all to theater. I, I do find that interviewing and talking to actors about this is that it is easy to blame the artistic directors, the casting directors, the directors, that it's their fault. They didn't do their due diligence. James told me that your job is also, is it creating things for diversity? How does, how does that your job work outside of just being the artistic director? We don't have sort of a centralized diversity inclusion plan yet. It's something that we're working on. The great thing is actually is that it's not just my job. We, mm. you know, Barry Edelstein, who's our artistic director, really sees it as everybody's job. Mm-hmm. And that and that is something that permeates throughout the organization, which is incredible and, and not something that you always see working in, the, in, in a theater in the theater. To James's sort of point of did we, did we hit 100%? You're never going to hit 100%. And I think part of what James experienced and part of the sort of backlash he experienced and part of the upset feelings that you felt from company members is that there's a history of it not coming from the top down. 
of it not being a priority, of people not doing their due diligence, people not giving 100% to try to make the thing happen. You know, and I think there is a legacy of it, and it's still ongoing, unfortunately. It's not like it's changed overnight. It's not like diversity is now the thing that everybody's accepted. Right. You know, I think it is something that people as an idea embrace, but you got to put the pedal in the metal. You have to actually do the work. You know, I look at our seasons from when I started to where we are now, and we are much more diverse than what we're putting on stage. You know, this past summer, we did Guys and Dolls, which I know you did in Florida. Yes. Um, and we actually ended up recasting a bunch of it, partially because of cast conflicts, etc. And we ended up having uh, two black, incredible black male leads as Nathan and Sky for us. So an actor by the name of Jay Bernard Calloway played Nathan and an actor by the name of Terrence Archie played Sky, and they were both remarkable in it. You know, and we went into that casting process saying we have to dig deep, we have to go far, we have to pull all the names of everybody who we think are right for these roles, and they're the guys who rose to the top of the pile. But I know not everybody, not every casting director or not every theater says we need a diverse list of everybody under the sun who could be possibly right for this role. And I think the challenge that I know that I've seen for actors of color is that they're not even considered. They're not even on the mm, list. Mm-hmm, yes. They're not even brought into the room. For us, we have to. It is it is one of our one of our values. We have a new vision value statement, but one of our values is inclusion. You know, and we really do feel like what you see on stage really needs to reflect the city that we live in. And the city that we live in is wildly diverse. It's yes. a city that is 15 minutes from the border. So what we're showing in on the Globe stage, in every stage here at the, at the theater, has to look like what we see out in the community. So the community work that we're doing where we're bringing Shakespeare out into the community, that is incredibly diverse. We want the community to come see shows on our stages, so that needs to look diverse. Well, and even to the the Grinch, which we're in tech for right now, you know, we have a handful of school shows, and a handful of those are subsidized. So they can bring kids in Mm. from communities that don't usually get to come to the theater. And it's important for us when casting the children's ensemble, the entire production of The Grinch, but when casting the children's ensemble in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, that we do get word out to all schools, Mm -hmm. you know, not just the local children's theaters, but that we get this word out to the schools in some of the Latino communities, in the black communities, the, you know, all, all communities, and encourage these kids to come in whether they have experience or not. You know, Jack O'Brien, the original director of How the Grinch Stole Christmas, who I was very lucky to take the show over from, said the reason he wants real kids on this stage in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, he said they don't have to be perfect dancers, they don't have to be the best actors, they have to have skill, of course, but the reason he wants them to be real kids is because he wants the community to come see the show and have the kids in the audience say, hey, that looks like me, I want to do that. Exactly. And to introduce the theater to all communities. So at the Globe, I think it's pretty fantastic that it starts at the age of six with our youngest two kid to out into the community with senior care facilities. You know, they take Globe for all the senior care facilities. So it runs the gamut of the San Diego community. It's it's a, you know, it's a total top-down it has to be a priority. It has to be the priority. Because the minute it doesn't become a priority or the priority, it doesn't happen. Mm. Because there's a legacy of it not happening. And so you just sort of fall back into the pattern of what's been done before. It is of no surprise that Hamilton is a huge hit. Now, Hamilton's an incredibly written musical, etc. But I think that show is such a huge phenomenon because it's so many people of color yes. on stage telling the story of America. Yes. That is, to me, that was the most special thing about it for me as a, as a person of color watching this thing happen in front of me was, oh my God, thinking about all the kids who are going to see theater who are getting to see themselves on stage. It's a game changer, total game changer. Total game changer. Total game changer. And it needs to permeate not just in in a modern piece like Hamilton, but, you know, we're doing the importance of being earnest. We just did Hamlet. Barry directed the production of Hamlet, and we cast this incredible black actor by the name of Granton Coleman. And so, you know, I think we were one of the first, if not the first, you know, professional production of Hamlet in the country to have a black Hamlet. Mm. 
It's 2017. That's yes. crazy. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? But it's a priority for us, and it has to be a priority, and we have to keep vigilant about it. And every time we program a show, we talk to the director and say, hey, just so you know, one of our values, one of the values of this, this organization is inclusion. That is going to permeate through this whole process as we look at the design team, as we look at the, the cast that we're going to put in place, etc. It has to reflect the country. This question is twofold, but the first part is when you're dealing with your audiences, I find that sometimes the audiences aren't ready for that much of inclusion. Uh, using the Guys and Dolls, for example, yeah. I knew how what a great production it was. And so I asked people, San Diego people, what they thought of Guys and Dolls. The first thing out of their mouth was, I didn't like the interracial couple. The conversation never got to talk to about Josh's direction or anything like that. It was always like, well, uh, it, the black and white thing. So obviously, like, it's one thing for the theater itself to be ready. But how do you get the audiences ready to be like, wake up? Yeah. Well, I think you I think you you just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I mean yeah. we have we have, you know, a huge subscription base here. We have, you know, people who I've met who have been coming since they were kids. You just have to keep doing it. Mm. You have to be, keep doing it and not being afraid of it. You have to think about how to talk about it. We do an interview with directors or and Barry writes a letter, etc. in each of the programs and I made sure one of the questions we asked Josh dealt with the casting that we did. You know, and he talked about guys and dolls being a fable. It's fable. It's a Broadway fable. Yeah. And shouldn't everybody have the right to perform in a fable like that? Yeah. It has nothing. The play has nothing to do with race. There, there's nothing in the lines that you're like, oh, well, that just felt, you know, it feels weird. This is a hmm. musical about white gangsters. It's not. It's a musical about gangsters. They could be yeah. of any shade of color. And they're almost cartoon characters. And they're almost cartoon characters. You know, and part of the thing that I found in general with diversity in theater is that, that an audience that isn't ready for it thinks it's agenda pushing. If they think you're trying to sort of shove this sort of agenda. And the thing that you have to do is, and it's the, the thing that gives me anxiety as I go through processes where we where we do a piece that is a classic and we shift the color than what people are used to seeing, is that I think it puts a pressure on the actor, and I know I feel the pressure as, as the producer on it, that that person who's in that role has to be perfect. Mm. That they have no... There's no line of not giving it a 100% performance. There's no line of them being A++. Because the minute the audience feels like, well, this person isn't really good enough for the role, is the minute they go to agenda pushing. I mean, the great thing that we found with Guys and Dolls, because those guys were so good, is that we got some of those comments. Inevitably, you're going to get some of those comments. Yeah. But the overwhelming thing that we found was a lot of people didn't mention it, or they actually said, oh, my God, how great... In 2017, you're doing this. Exactly. And so you have to remember, as you read some of the negative comments where you're just like, I never want to work in the American theater again, (laughs) is that that, as time is now passing, that is becoming an anomaly. That the overwhelming voice is, this is great. Yeah. But the quality has to be better than than okay. It has to be perfect. The term colorblind casting gets thrown around a lot. And oftentimes people say that they don't find that it's colorblind casting. They'd say, we're deciding that track is going ethnic. And it, sure. So where, when you see colorblind casting and you're like, oh, we're going to do this. I mean, what semantically does that actually mean? I have experienced colorblind casting in my acting days. Of We're submitting you for this part that is typically played by this type of actor. My experience again was, oh, well, on paper your name says, but you don't visually look. So then is that colorblind a- casting? Mm. I mean, I, you know, it's... Been, I call it safely ethnic. Safely. Well, you know, <laughs> but here's the thing. Yeah. I, I, there, there's also, and I will admit this to the <laughs> podcast world, I've benefited from my mother's side of my family. Mm. You know, I will say that I know that I have been hired to fill a Latino quota but people have actually said to me when Trump was hired, hired, can we fire him? <laughs> when Trump was elected, people actually said to me, oh, you're going to be okay because you don't look Mexican. Or in regards to my husband and I, oh, you're going to be okay because you don't act gay. 
Oh, you, yeah. you know, so in, listen, I fully acknowledge in some ways I get to be who I am and slide through because of the way I may look and appear. Yeah. Well, even, and I love my mom. My mom's known you since kindergarten. Yes. She calls you booty. Yes, but that's a whole nother podcast. In but I even said to her that I was doing this interview and she said, well, he's only half Mexican, Brad. Does that really count? Like, and I was like, oh, yes, of course it counts. <laughs> my fourth year of, of school, we had a casting director come in, Stuart Howard. Yes, Howard? I do. Uh, Stuart Howard. I loved Stuart Howard. He came in and he would tell us, you have to be sexy when you walk in that room. You have to be sexy. And me, at 21, I looked like I was 14 and I should be on the Mickey Mouse Club. So I was like, sexy? I'm, what does that mean? <laughs> now on the other side of the table, more often than not, I get it. To me, when, what he was saying was, you have to come in and you have to be interesting. You have to mm. be confident. You have to be sure of who you are and in yourself. And so for me, the term of colorblind casting comes into play when somebody walks in the room who brings something really interesting and exciting and somebody that I want to spend time with and I want to play with during the process. I don't think you can look at somebody who's different looking than us and not acknowledge that in your brain. Mm. So that idea of colorblind, I, I see you, I see you, I see, you know, you see what I look like. But what are you bringing to the table? What talent are you bringing? What skill are you bringing? What love are you bringing and yeah. passion? That to me, be sexy. And I don't care, can you tell the story in a clear, beautiful way? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think part, part of the challenge for the traditional quote unquote or older white audience, I think at times is that there is a lens that they're gonna view it through. I mean, I think there is. Inevitably, there is. We, yeah. don't live in a, we don't live in a world, we don't live in a country where people don't see race. That's crazy. Yes. People clock it the minute they see it. My hope is that as we keep doing this work, as the industry keeps doing this work, is that people clock it, but it's not a thing. Because mm. they're going to clock it. They're totally going to clock it. But you hope it's not a thing. And that goes back to people being excellent. That goes back to giving people the opportunities, et cetera. You know, we haven't sat our audience down and said, well, this is what our thing is now. We're mm. going to do this thing. Because we just felt like this is what we should be doing. It's, it's 2017, you know, and we're living in the United States of America, a country that is turning very slowly, but faster than you think, where it's becoming more minority majority. This is the tide of the country's change. It's not going back. Right. Right. So the theater has to catch up. We also work in an industry that is always like 15 to 20 years behind the times, right? I think like Hamilton is incredible, but that type of music has been created for years and years and years. But the theater has finally caught up. So I think we're now in an upswing where things are starting to catch up. But we have to be vigilant. We have to we have to speak out about it. We have to make sure that that it's coming from the top down. We have to make sure that there are people of color who are entering these higher level positions. Because ultimately, they're the ones who are making the hire. The people at the top are making the hire. Mm. You know, I look at myself as a person of color, you know, as an associate artistic director here, thankfully blessed with a boss who cares about and is very vigilant and has implemented all of these things. But it is helpful to have me on staff because I see it and I think about it every single day of my life. And I think when you have that type of person, when you have those voices in the room right. that, are, that have different perspectives, then you're going to keep doing it. And that's what needs to happen. And going back to what Eric was saying about in some of these cases where you hire these actors of color, how they have to come out and they have to be 100%. I certainly feel that. I certainly feel that in some of these cases where I may have slid through because of the accent over the A in my last name <laughs> and, and fill that quota. I'm very aware that I have to come in and knock it out of the park. You know what I mean? I have to come in and be prepared and give them a show. But I also, backtracking to something else, the guys and dolls casting, oh, why would they do that? That's uncomfortable. I think part of our job as artists is to occasionally ruffle feathers. Mm. And if somebody gets upset by something they see on stage, great. Maybe in the car ride home, it starts a discussion. Yeah. You know, I always talk about the act three of a, the play, which is the car ride home for yeah. the audience. What are you talking about? If it opened that door to discussion, great. Let's push some buttons. And you have to remember that you always remember the person who screamed the loudest. 
in the negative. Yes. That's what you always take away, right? As theater artists, we're like, who hated it? What do they hate about it? Let me make it better next time. Like you always think about it. And, and I find myself doing that at times, especially sort of when we think outside the box with casting or, or the play, et cetera, is that you're like, what, what are the negative comments? What are they saying? What do I need to think about? Yes. You know, and, it, and my husband reminds me, he's like, it's not that they're not the only voice in the room. And you're like, okay, that's right. Yes. That's right. There are many people who aren't even saying anything because they just had a good time. Right. You know, and again, it goes back to you have to be fearless about it. Look, you have to be smart about it, too. As much as we're in the business of making art, it's also a business. You know, we're in an organization that, that has over 100 full-time employees. We hire 200-plus actors, et cetera. We have all these designers, everybody coming in. People have to get paid. People have to make a living. So we have to make sure that our audience isn't totally getting thrown out the window because we want to do these things. And so it's about being smart, but it's also, again, about figuring out how to be fearless, how to be smart about it in a way that they'll understand. You know, and sometimes, yes, you have to ruffle feathers. But if we're just ruffling feathers and not taking them along for the ride while we ruffle them a little bit, mm -hmm. then we've not done our job because we're here for our audience. Yeah. We got to push them to be, to think differently sometimes, but we're here for our audience. And I think that's what's so great about sort of the work that we do here. It's the work that I see James doing around the city is that I think you are looking at things through a different lens because of your experience. Mm -hmm. But you're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're also no. thinking about the audience. You're totally thinking about the well, audience. Well, I mean, I'm there to tell a story. Right. You know, that's my job. And if I can tell it in an interesting and exciting way, that is not the way we're used to seeing it and still honor it. That's exciting. Right. And I think some criticisms people get is when you are there to tell the story, do you always cast the best person to tell the story? Or sometimes are you looking to cast it just to be diverse? And so the best person might not have gotten it because you mean they were the wrong, wrong skin color. And I think also people feel that the whole diversity thing is unfair because say a black man gets to play Sky Masterson, but a white man's never gonna get to play Cole House Walker, so that's not fair. That's why, not me per se, but the whiteness that I represent, yeah, sure. we feel that, you know? Yeah, it's, I, I, oh God, I love the, well, why can't a white actor play Cole? It's not your story. No. It's definitely not your story. So that part of it, it's not your story. But you they can say the same thing about the guys and dolls or Billy Bigelow. It's not their story. Billy Bigelow's a white man in Maine at the turn of the century. It's a white man's story. But it's okay for a black man to play yeah. it. Why, why is there a difference? It's interesting. I think, though, if you go back to those texts, there's nothing about those characters that have to be white. That's the thing, right? No, but if you go back to the history Sure. Books, if you go back to the history, well, yeah, sure. Sure. Right. Sure. Yes. Absolutely. Um, you go to Maine now. <laughs> I'm in Maine a lot. I, I don't see a yeah. black man, let alone an Asian yeah. or a, even a half Latin person. It's white. Yeah. They're white now. 2017, it would be white then. I think it's great that they're yeah. doing that. But at the same time, why is casting an Italian woman as Ava horrible, but casting a black man as Billy Bigelow, oh my God, revolutionary. It's, and so I think some people yeah. uh, who aren't of any color don't understand why they don't think it's fair. This is not an answer. This is a, but is there something like Carousel, which is an American story, and you look at America, yeah. which is now, we're mutts, we're mutts. But you do look at something like Fences, and that is an American human story, but it is American human story about whom? Yeah. A neighborhood and a culture and a family. Right. So, you know, we've taken the telescope and we've sort of, we've zoomed in on, on that community. So I don't know, is that, the, is that the difference? Whereas, again, something like Carousel is American. Yeah. Yeah, in my mind, yeah, I think that's right. There are pieces that have been written that are explicitly about a specific community and their experience. I would argue with somebody who, who would make that point about Carousel, that piece is not about white America. It's nothing to do. It's not dealing with the race of white America. No. But then what is the race of white America? Is it about, it, it's not about, it's not specifically about the Italian American community. It's not specifically about the Polish. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has that. to do with fishermen. It just has been cast <laughs> white because that's how it's been done. Exactly. You know, and I think that's where the mind, the mindset has to shift. 
you know, and it's challenging because I think, you know, that revival that's happening on Broadway, there are, I'm, there are, I'm sure there are people who won't go see it because they've cast Josh Henry as Billy Bigelow. Right. But then there are people that will go see it that totally. usually don't go. Yeah. And that's what we have. We have to look at the, the, the future of theater, not yeah. the past of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, my hope, who knows? Who knows what's going on in this country today? Is that that mindset is shifting? Mm-hmm. That that mindset of this sort of the, the next crop of theater goers has shifted, and they're ready for that, and they'll clock it because you're going to see it, but it won't be a thing, mm-hmm. you know. And I think for us, when we when we talk about casting, we always try to find the best person. That is ultimately our job here is to put the best work out that we can, but. A priority for us is making sure that the work that we're doing is diverse. Mm. You know, and again, I go back to there are exceedingly talented people of color out there. You just don't know about them or they never make the list or they're never, you know, there aren't people digging through names to say, hey, bring this person in. I saw them in this thing because they're great. And I think that's where the work has to get done is that when you go into a casting process, you have to be exhaustive about who you bring in and find the best. But you will usually find that the best is diverse. Right. But do you find, I know you at this table, you are, but do you think that in general people are that exhaustive or they just do the basic work, whoever shows up to the audition gets the part? I think uh, I think. M- a lot, unless it comes from the top down, mm-hmm. it's the whoever comes in right. gets the role. Well, I know you're on time constraints, so I have a couple more random yeah, yeah, questions. Yeah, uh, I think sometimes people think some diversity casting is arbitrary. I think from an actor's point of view, we would say, oh, this year the Globe decided we're going to have a black branch. This year we're going to have a black Max, and that there's there's not really thought put into it. You know what I mean? It's just, this. we need another token, is what uh, people say. And it's not that arbitrary. No, I mean, I, 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 I won't share, but I should share the Grinch list with you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the Grinch and the, the Max list that we go through every year is, yes, there's a type we look for. And then we open the door to actors who fit that type. Sometimes end up with the actor that we do, very talented, but because our first choice maybe booked on something else. Mm-hmm. That happens, um, and they come in and they're wonderful. And sometimes they're an actor of color, sometimes they're not. But we start with, as Eric said, a, a very exhaustive yeah. list. I mean, I think, honestly, we started with a list of probably 45 names on it for The Grinch this year. Oh my God. You go through to who's available, who's working on other things, who's maybe not quite right, who's, you know, when people float to the top. And as director, and as somebody who has directed it for the last, I think this is my eighth year directing it, we're in our 20th anniversary, bringing somebody who's going to honor the story but bring a new energy. Some names get crossed off the list because, well, we've seen an energy like that for the last couple years. Here's somebody a little fresh. Yeah. I think as like sometimes a white person, we find that very arbitrary. Like they didn't even they don't even care if the person's talented. They just already know ahead of time that track's going to ethnic. But then friends of mine who are ethnic are like, well, yeah. And now for the rest of eternity, I'll be playing that track. That right. track. Yeah. No, the other tracks don't open up because the other tracks are white tracks. Yeah. So right. we should be happy. We get one track out of eight ensemble tracks is the ethnic track. Yeah. So you're sad that one job of eight was taken away from you and we're excited one job of eight was given to us. Yeah, and I, you know, I, going back to what James said, I find that, again, yeah, you have a type for the Grinch. And then we think about what roles are similar, right? So what roles right. in other musicals are similar? And that's where you sort of run the gamut of, of, different, of different races, ethnicities, et cetera. You're saying, well, is it like, it's like Gaston and Beauty and the Beast. Well, who's played that role in right. productions? Or mm. it's like this other role. And you do, you know, you think about what roles are of color that are similar in other musicals, and you look at those tracks too. So it's it's not arbitrary in that like, oh, well, this year, this person's going to be of color. You think, well, this is the role I want. Let me think about all the different tracks, and let's create a full list of every shade of color name. Mm. And then let's start pulling video. You take a look at video, mm-hmm. or we'll get audition tapes, etc. And that's where it's you have to be exhaustive. Yeah. Because because so it's not arbitrary. You're saying, well, that's that thing. And so we'll just we'll bring in the people of color for that role. It's saying, look at every role, look at every track, different track that they could have played. Because that's where it feels, for lack of a better word, fair to everybody. Right. So my last question is like now I think that right now, because this is a hot topic in theaters, 
Do you think are the way the country is and the administration is reflecting it and people of color are finding their voice and now and saying, no, we need fairness because they're seeing it, now it's affecting everywhere? Do you think that that has it's always been the case with theater or do you think the administration has something to do with a stronger fire lit under this bum, I guess? I think the fire has been lit. I think it's been simmering underneath the surface and it's finally rising to the surface. It goes back to sort of the thing I first said where I think we're all, every person in the country is finding their voice about the things that they feel about or the different things they feel about and finding a, figuring out a way to actually have a conversation. But it's going to be messy because there's so many, every day the laws change. Every day a right that you're worried about is going to be taken away. Every day you're on edge. So inevitably there are people who are not going to say anything because they're just terrified and there are people who are going to scream. So we have to find a way to meet in the middle. But I think it's been simmering underneath the surface for the, in the theater for a very long time. You know, I think there are organizations like this one, which I'm so thrilled to be a part of, where we've been thinking about it for years, mm. you know, and making it a priority for years. And yeah, has, has what's going on in the country lit a fire under us to make it happen and matter even more? Absolutely. But I think as artists, I hope, it's always been in the back of our minds that this is an important thing. Well, and I think it's also important to um, create it. Mm. You know, I think for me, again, my sort of identity crisis that I grew up with, 29th and Gay is about that a little bit. Mm. 29th and Gay is about being this Mexican-American and not knowing where I sort of fit in. So I needed to get that out and figure that out for me through art. You know, and I think the the technology that we have today is helping it simmer mm-hmm. and is helping that fire because now I am able to go tell a story about myself and my culture. Now there is the ability to have different cultures present their art on social media or, you know, so I, I think that is helpful. Just the access to being able to get our voices heard. And to connect with each other. I think that's a big thing. Yeah. Through, while at times I hate social media, one of the great things about social media is, is it's, it's an easy way to get information out and also to connect with other people to sort of start things and, and start grassroots can, campaigns, etc. You know, look at the Women's March. I found out about it through Facebook. Oh, absolutely. And I knew yeah. to mobilize and be there, and so did the other thousands of people here in San Diego. When used right, can be a tool to get people together to sort of start making an impact. Well, I want to thank you both very much. I think we did a very good job of having a very messy conversation. <laughs> and I hope other theaters learn from the example that the globe is set when it comes to diversity. And these are conversations that we all need to have. And I think, as, as James said, it's that there is a third act regardless of everything and you have to have that third act and talk with your friends and, yeah. and ask questions of your friends of color to, to find out. If people aren't educated and don't ask questions, we're never going to be able to, to achieve whatever the end goal is. And so thank you guys for being part of that. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. It's not that easy being green Having to spend each day the color of the leaves when I think it could be nicer being red or yellow or gold or something much more colorful like that it's not easy being green it seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things and people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky but green's the color of spring and green can be cool friendly like and green can be big like an ocean or important like a mountain or tall like a tree when green is all there is to be it could make you wonder why 
But why wonder why wonder I am green and it'll do fine. It's beautiful and I think it's what I want to be. Ha 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 ha!